The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's take a few moments in silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together this morning to worship you through the teaching and learning of your word. We know that in your word you have given us all of the principles, the doctrines we need in order to live our life, to have the happiness, the maximum joy that Jesus Christ has given to us and that we might uh, have and experience the full fellowship that we have with you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ by following the principles outlined in your word. Father, now as we study these things, we pray that we might be challenged as we look at what it means to root out the human viewpoint, cosmic thinking that so often uh, dominates our own thinking, and uh, yet we are often unaware of it. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying in Judges chapter 6 through 8 is the episodes related to the um, Gideon's defeat, the judgeship of Gideon and Gideon's defeat by 300, uh, a 300-man army of 135,000-man army of the coalition of the Amalekites and the Midianites. Last time we came to Judges chapter 8, which is sort of the mopping up operation where he uh, finally wipes out and destroys the remnants of the Midianite army. And in the process of looking at that, we saw that after the main battle took place up in the area of the hill of Morah in the valley of Jezreel, the armies of the Midianite coalition headed south. And while they, when they headed south, Gideon issued a call for the Ephraimite, the tribe of Ephraim, which occupied the central area of Israel, the hill country, for the Ephraimites to come and cut off their retreat at the fords of the Jordan. The Ephraimites did that, and we saw that they cut, cut off part of the retreat, and there they, they um, killed two of the generals, Oreb and Zeb, leaders of the Midianite coalition. Another segment of a about 20,000 or so, escaped across the Jordan, and Gideon pursued them. On his pursuit of them across the Jordan, he went 
to pass this town, Sukkoth and Penuel. And at those two places he sought aid and sustenance, food and water for his troops, and he was denied. Now there's three things going on here with these, or two things going on here with these two different people that somehow indicate something about or teach us some things about the spiritual life. As always, what we see here is there are those who reject the grace of God, who just don't want to orient to doctrine, don't want to orient to the grace of God, and want to live their life on their own power, their own energy. And we see this represented in really two groups. One, the Ephraimites, and then the second group is the inhabitants of Sukkoth and Penuel. So by analogy, we can see that these groups represent uh, different types of believers. There are three different types of believers. We have, first of all, the grace-oriented, doctrinally-oriented believer, as represented by the 300 and by Gideon. They're trusting God. They've got a, what would appear in human viewpoint terms to be an insurmountable problem. They've got 300 going against 135,000. And yet God has promised that His grace is sufficient for us, that His solution is better than our solution, and He's going to demonstrate that through these 300. And He did demonstrate it. That they didn't even have to charge in battle against the uh, Midianite encampment. They just did what God said to do, and God brought confusion upon the Midianites and they began to kill each other, and they became so panicked that they fled. Now, what man does typically is we look at a problem and we say, okay, this is my solution. God's solution just seems, well, a little idealistic, and, and uh, I'm not sure how that can really work out, so I'm going to help God. And we compromise. And that's what the Ephraimites had done. They, were, they represented the compromised believer who maintains a facade of Christianity. See, they, they maintain this overt a devotion to Yahweh, but in terms of really trusting God in the midst of the battle, uh, they were lacking. And so they, they represent that kind of believer who is overtly practicing Christianity, talks the talk, as it were, but doesn't walk the walk, has no real grace orientation. This can be manifested as either the legalistic believer who is self-righteous and relying upon his own efforts, his own morality to somehow impress God, or it can even be represented by uh, a more carnal believer. But in this case, we have more the idea of the legalistic believer who has an external facade of obedience, but no real grace orientation. And the Ephraimites, we saw, got their reward. They were recognized by, by uh, Gideon. At the end of the battle, they went to Gideon and they complained, why weren't we called initially? Well, that wasn't part of the plan, and... Gideon very wisely just uh, calmed him down and said, Well, what you did was greater than anything I did. You were the ones who, who defeated Oreb and Zeeb, and you got the glory for that. They got their reward. Remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees that if you pray in public and you give your alms in public then, uh, and you do it before men, then truly you have your reward. You've been seen by men and, and you have that public praise, but it doesn't count for anything spiritually. So they got their reward, but they're not honored by God as people who trusted God. You don't find any mention of the Ephraimites in the uh, Faith Hall of Fame chapter in Hebrews 11. You do find Gideon mentioned, but you don't find them mentioned. They, were, they did what they did, but it wasn't by trusting God. It was in their own power, their own ability, which shows us that human viewpoint strategies to solve problems in life often work, at least on the surface. But that doesn't mean they have any spiritual value. It doesn't mean that it glorifies God, but somehow it seems to ameliorate the problem for us. The third type of believer are those who are just antagonistic to doctrine. 
They are either believers who are in rank carnality and reversionism, and they've compromised so much with human viewpoint that now they're antagonistic to doctrine, or perhaps this third group represents unbelievers who are antagonistic to doctrine. Their thinking is so dominated by pagan concepts, by the thinking of the cosmic system. The cosmic system is Satan's thought form. Uh, it's always characterized by two primary elements, and, uh, and arrogance and antagonism to God. These are the twin pillars of satanic thought, and we will see them displayed again and again. Arrogance, which is self-absorption and self-promotion, and antagonism toward God, toward doctrine, and towards the plan and purposes of God. Now, the Sukkoth and Penuel believers represent those who are antagonistic to God because they won't give any aid or sustenance to Gideon, and they are too concerned about taking care of themselves and making sure that, well, Gideon, if you ultimately lose the battle, we don't want the Midianites to come back and punish us. So they were more afraid of man than they were of God. They were more concerned with how the world, what the world thought of them than, what, uh, than their relationship to God. And so Gideon comes back after he defeats uh, Zeba and Zalmunna, the uh, kings of Midian, after he defeats them, he comes back and he physically punishes uh, Penuel, the inhabitants of Penuel and Sukkoth in a very violent manner. And he does that because they have compromised with the enemy and they are traitors to God and traitors to Israel. Now, what this all represents to us is the fact that as believers, we are on the same kind of mission. We go back to our general analogy that the land of Israel, by analogy, represents the thinking of the believer, the spiritual life, what we have positionally in Christ. It's related to our positional inheritance. It is our possession in Christ. Nevertheless, just as Israel had to go into the land and physically, militarily take possession of it, even though God had given it to them, they had to, in God's way, remember it's not only the end but the means, in God's way they had to take the land that God gave them to them. They had to take possession of it. And that represents the process of sanctification in our life. We have all of these possessions positionally in Christ, but it's our job to learn doctrine and take control of every thought in our lives. We are to take charge of every thought, renewing our mind, taking charge of every thought and removing human viewpoint and replacing it with divine viewpoint in our thinking. That's the process of the spiritual growth. So we've been given a seek and destroy mission to take out all of the all the human viewpoint and cosmic thinking that resides in our soul. Now that's a tremendous task because most of us have become so infected with the human viewpoint thinking around us. We're not we don't even see it anymore. It's in the air we breathe. It's in the everything we read. And so often it just seems so good. That's the danger of cosmic thinking. Ultimately, it's based on human self-reliance. It's based on the concept that, that man helps, that or God helps those who help themselves. You know, it sounds good. And so much of human viewpoint sounds good. It sounds like common sense. Well, why does it sound like common sense? Because this is what we've been taught all our lives. It, it, these truisms that uh, are part and parcel of the culture in which we grow up are, so, are taught to us from the earliest stages of life so that they become second nature to us. And we never, or frequently never, uh, are, are rarely look at them, take these things out, these ideas out, and, and look at them. So cosmic thinking has its own problem-solving 
approach, its own uh, way of de- dealing with problems in personal relationships, its own approach to success, its own way of handling money. And what we have to do is root out these ideas. Now, the problem with co- cosmic thinking is it's deceptive. It often sounds good in theory. We think it makes just good common sense. Often it produces the results that we would like to see produced. And so we think that, well, it must be right because we got the results. Well, see, that's part of cosmic thinking. That's called pragmatism. It's a human viewpoint system of thinking that if it works, it must be right. But that's not what the Bible says. There are a lot of things that seem to work, but they're done in the energy of the flesh, and they're not done God's way according to God's word. And as a result, they're not done with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so even though they produce results that we intended to produce, they don't, count for, they don't glorify God, they don't count for eternity, and they don't have any spiritual value. As we grow up, we develop deeply held convictions about life that we pick up from our parents, from our peers, from newspapers, editorials, people we admire, teachers, All kinds of different things influence us with ideas. At some time along the way, we trust the Lord and we start to learn something about the Bible. And immediately there comes a conflict. We see that the Bible teaches some things that that might run 180 degrees opposite of what we have been taught is true and right. And then we have to make a decision. Are we going to exchange the uh, human viewpoint in our thinking for divine viewpoint? Or are we going to say, well... Maybe that's just that person's interpretation. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe uh, I, I just don't understand. Maybe the Bible just got it wrong because th- this makes me comfortable. This always seems to work for me. It's worked for a lot of other people, so, so maybe I just don't understand something. And so what we do, we rationalize away the radical obedience to God's Word because those concepts that the earth is only 5,000 years old or might only be five or 6,000 years old. That's so radical. I mean, everywhere we go, they say the earth, the universe, is several uh, million, millions, hundreds of millions of years old, if not billions of years old. Uh, how could all those scientists possibly be wrong? Well, maybe I just... Well, let, let's reinterpret the Scripture. And so we, we, instead of challenging the human viewpoint concepts that are around us, we, we find it easier to compromise because... A, 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 after all, we don't want to be viewed as some sort of backwoods, backward, uneducated, non-thinking fundamentalist. I mean, how horrible could it possibly get? So, um, we have to make a decision. Are we going to go with what the Bible says, even though we may not understand it all? Are we going to make sure we understand what the Bible says and go with that? Or are we going to stick with uh, human viewpoint concepts? Now, what happens in this whole process is that we often have to challenge truisms that are accepted by all. They seem to be culturally accepted norms, culturally accepted procedures and practices. What happens is often that these truisms become sacred cows. They become untouchable. I remember several years ago when I was talking with um, a friend of mine who was going to pastor, looking for a pastorate, and he and I had spoken several times over the years about problems in, in contemporary churches. One of the problems is the influence of psychology and counseling on churches. Another was the, the um, popularity. This was in the early to mid-90s. There was the popularity of the um, um, promise keepers. There's also the continued influence of contemporary Christian music and contemporary choruses on, on worship and having a worship leader 
he's not the pastor anymore, but he's a song leader, and a, a band up in front and all of these different forms and um, a number of other things that have become accepted practices in most churches that he said, you know, R- Robbie, you can't even question these things. You can't even put them on the table for analysis anymore. If you even question that, are you sure that's biblical? You even raise the question, you're out the door. These are sacred cows now that have become embedded in, in, within the church. And concepts on church growth, concepts of marketing to church are very popular today. Almost every church has some kind of marketing program, marketing plan, where you, you are following a certain way of, uh, of uh, building your church so that you can go from a church of 100 to a church of 5,000 over five years and you can graph it all out and develop your business plan and your mission statement and then you go out and you use all of the techniques and tools of the business world in order to try to build a large organization. And if you even question that, in most churches, to most pastors, you're considered some kind of oddity. You're a dinosaur. Because nobody questions, everybody's doing this. I mean, it's just normally accepted practice. What do you mean question it? I don't have time to worry about that. You go away. You, just, you people who just want to be biblical all the time, you know, go find something else to do and let me build my church and have mass evangelism programs and everything else. And that's the kind of thinking. The issue is we have to be willing to challenge every single thought in our minds to see if it's biblical or not. Now, that brings up another point, And that is there's a lot of question as to just exactly what makes something biblical. What makes something biblical is that it derives from the Bible. Most people, if it's, it's biblical, if the Bible doesn't say, don't do it. That's not what biblical means. Biblical means that you understand the whole framework of divine viewpoint thinking in the Scriptures, and out from that, you develop your methodology as well as your end goals. But see, in most churches and in most seminaries and most pastors, they, they don't concern themselves with methodology as long as it gets the results. Now, they don't make it that clear. They don't come right out and say, well, the end justifies the means. But that's what their practice is. And they don't take the time to stop and really evaluate the practice. So, biblical means that it is derived from the Bible. That the Bible tells us not only how or, or what the goal is, but how to get there, how to live the Christian life, and what the, the function of the local church is. Now, as we look at this whole concept of cosmic thinking, and that as believers, our task is to seek and destroy the human viewpoint concepts in our own thinking and to remove those from our soul, we have to look at and identify these things. That's part of the first step is identify them. And as I've thought about the historical um, trends in America over the last 200 years, I've identified four basic undertoes, strong undercurrents, of cosmic thinking that affect every one of us. Now, what what undergirds all these, what they all have in common, is that they all are supported by a subjective view of knowledge that goes back to Immanuel Kant in the late 18th century. We've studied that a little bit in the past. That basically says you can't know things in themselves. You can only know your perception of things. And that's subjectivity. And once you, you move the central point of knowledge from outside to inside, you lose the concept of objective principles and objective standards. And now everything is viewed through a subjective internal grid. It affects law. I saw the other day where some uh, 12-year-old boy had brutally murdered a 
six-year-old girl, and he was sentenced to life in prison. And the prosecutor was answering questions. Now, I was just kind of, I was cooking or something at the time and during lunch, and I wasn't really paying 100% attention to what was going on. Didn't hear all the questions, but I could tell from his answers that the questions were, well, why are you so harsh? Why, is, why, why life imprisonment without parole? And the answers that kept coming back from the prosecutors, from the DA, from everybody, was this is the way the law, once again, it was in Florida, this is the way the law is written. The judge did, and one commentator said, well, the judge didn't yield to public pressure. He didn't yield to sentiment. That's emotion. He didn't yield to anything. He just did what the law said he had to do. That's saying that there's an objective standard out there, and no matter how you feel, no matter what the extenuating circumstances might be, no matter what the public pressure might be, you do what the objective standard says to do. But see, when you live in an in a environment that's affected by subjectivism, you do what is determined by your internal perception, your internal feeling. And, and oh, this poor kid, life without parole, is only 12 years old. You mean he's going to live another maybe 70, 80 years as a ward of the state in, uh, in the prison? Well, that's just terrible. Isn't there some way we can avoid that? You know, it's, it's just this emotionalism and subjectivism instead of an, uh, an objective standard. So what we see is what undergirds these four, these four currents, these four undertoes of cosmic thinking is this subjectivism of knowledge that man is the ultimate reference point for truth in the universe. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? That's the theme of judges. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So there's our point of analogy. Now, what are these four undertones? Now, I'm certainly not going to have time to develop all of them, but I want you can read them on your own. The first is Darwinism. Darwinism, both scientific Darwinism in terms of of the whole theory of evolution, the monkey to man or amoeba to man scenario, but also social Darwinism. In fact, the joining of social Darwinism with capitalism created something that was, that was not true capitalism in the late 19th century and produced a lot of what we know as the robber barons, just the um, survival of the fittest mentality in business, which lost all concepts of, of any level of, of compassion or concern for individuals as a result of that you have the equal and opposite reaction the rise of unions and other things like that uh, it also impacted about 95 percent of modern educational theory and in fact there's an interesting book out written by a man who formerly was uh, teacher of the year over in the state of new york and in his book he basically argues that part of social darwin the impact of social darwinism on the robber barons in the late 19th century was to develop this whole mentality of uh, that uh, uh, required public education, that everybody ought to be uh, required to go to school. And his thesis, after several years of teaching, he was an excellent teacher, he finally quit teaching the public school system, and he's arguing that um, this whole concept of mandatory education is, is a fallacy, and it comes, it's a result of social Darwinism. Now, I'm not saying that he's right, I'm just saying he points out that that's one impact of it. Another impact of social Darwinism was on the thinking of uh, Adolf Hitler and the uh, anti-Semitism of the Nazis. So Darwinism has had extreme impact in a lot of different ways on our history in the last 150 years. Sociology is another one. And one, one aspect of sociology is in the realm of, of salesmanship and marketing. And now on the basis of salesmanship and marketing principles, you have those apply to church growth and the mission of the church so that most pastors are out there marketing their church according to the basic principles of salesmanship and they, they don't understand any kind of biblical ecclesiology. 
You see, God provides the hearers, not man. It's, Jesus said, it's, I will build my church. To the pastor, he said, feed the sheep. But in most churches today, uh, who knows who's feeding the sheep? They're, they're starving to death because the pastor is building the church. And he's doing it not according to biblical principles, but according to the principles of salesmanship and, and marketing. Uh, a, a third undertow is social liberalism. Social and as well as political liberalism, which is founded on the concept that man is not necessarily bad. Man is not inherently evil. Now, if you want to study that or if that's a problem, you don't understand that, I would encourage you to read a book by a black intellectual by the name of Thomas Sowell called Conflict of Vision. It will twist your brain a little bit. But in that book, he argues very coherently for the fact that the basic difference between liberals and conservatives is that conservatives think that man is inherently evil and liberals think that man is inherently good and therefore perfectible. And that's going to change how you view almost every issue and problem in life. And that was the problem that came out of subjectivism, Kantian subjectivism in the 19th century. It is part of it was that man's basically good and, um, and not evil as Christianity says. So um, one of the problems, I think, is reaction to that. That gave birth to the whole social gospel movement. And in reaction to that, biblical conservatives lost any sort of social vision for culture and for society. And that was a problem. That's a problem for conservatives and for conservative churches is that it, we, we reacted to the social gospel and said, well, all we have to do is sit in church and fold our hands and, and let society fall apart. And there was little concern expressed for the poor or for social conditions. And that was wrong. Prior to that, there had been a tremendous impact by, by conservatives on social situations. So that is something that, that needs to be addressed. And then the fourth trend of, or the fourth undertow of cosmic thought is psychology. Transpersonal psychology is one way of the idea that by, by getting involved in talk therapy, we can identify our problems and that our problems are based in our environment and we can identify our problems and man can solve his problems. And so I started last time looking at this whole concept of the Bible and humanistic or transpersonal psychology because psychology has impacted the, 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 the vocabulary, the categories, and the thinking of uh, transpersonal psychology has impacted all of us to one degree or another. Anybody here who has used a word like self-image in the last uh, week has been impacted. You've picked up a vocabulary word and a category that's non-biblical. And it came directly out of uh, a psychological framework that was in rejection of Christianity. So we all have this, and what we have to do is learn to identify these things in our thinking so that we can root them out. And that's what, uh, in essence, Gideon was doing, was rooting out the compromisers in Israel. So we have to root out the compromise in our own thinking. Now, whenever I look at a study like this and engage in this and start talking about psychology, I have learned that there's always somebody who gets offended. There's always somebody who reacts subjectively, and there's always somebody who says, well, you know, that's just not realistic or it really doesn't work. And usually what you discover is that this person, somewhere in their past, and almost 50% of Americans or 60% of Americans have in their lifetime been to, to some kind of counseling or psych psychological therapy, that usually there's somebody who, because of their past, in their past, or someone they love, has been helped 
by psychology. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't helped by psychology. That's not the issue. The issue is not, does it work? The issue always, the first issue is always, is it biblical? The second issue, then, is application. It's never asked the question, does it work? When that's the first question out of your mind, you're a pragmatist and you're not thinking biblically. You're thinking according to a human viewpoint system. Now, what happens is that people go through various problems. Either it's a problem with addiction or depression. Maybe it's a problem with your children's behavior. It's very popular today to to talk about kids with ADHD and all sorts of other problems. And the first thing we want to do is medicate the kids rather than look at the parents and say, hmm, maybe you need to spend a lot more time as a parent teaching discipline to your children and teaching them how to uh, control their sin nature and uh, look at the environment you're providing as a parent and what you're teaching as a parent and quit relying on chemicals to do your job for you. Um, I'm not saying that there are never problems that, that don't need to be medicated. I'm just saying that I think that too often we jump there too quickly. Or sometimes you, people have gone through marital problems or intense adversity, and in the midst of that, they did the culturally accepted thing, and they went to a therapy session, and somehow over five or six weeks, their problems were solved, or five or six months, or whatever it was, and they reached a level of stability and uh, functionality in life. And so that was great, and they're happy, and they're, now all of a sudden I'm saying that maybe that was wrong, and it's not biblical, and you just got involved with the cosmic system, and so there's reaction. Well, don't get subjective on me. Relax, and let's look at what the Scripture has to say, and let's look at what psychologists have to say about their own system. We always have to be careful not to be deceived by the world's system. The issue is not, were you helped? Are you functional? The issue is, are you advancing spiritual, spiritually? Are you glorifying God? Are you living the spiritual life according to the ways that God said to live the spiritual life? Are you trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and trying to achieve happiness in life through psychological methodology? Or are you doing it according to the application of doctrine? So last, last week, I started this study... And I'm going to go back and review, and add, I've gone back and I've added things to the initial points, so uh, we'll have to start over a little bit. Now, in 1941, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, forewarned us of the problem of psychology. In this context, the old demon, Screwtape, counsels the young novice demon, Wormwood, on how to successfully tempt believers. And in his counsel, he says, keep his mind off the plain antithesis between true and false. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, you're just too rigid. Everything you see is black and white. It's either right or it's wrong. C.S. Lewis says this is one of the strategies of Satan. Keep his mind off the plain antithesis between true and false and keep him in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. See, that's what's happened is we have compromised Christianity with psychology. Psychology, therefore, point one, is one of the most destructive aspects of cosmic arrogance that has become a respected member of the Christian scene in the world today. We have just bought it hook, line, and sinker. There's not a seminary around that doesn't offer courses in psychology and counseling. And when you get through with your required semester of that, you think, gosh, I'll never be a successful pastor unless I go study a lot of psychology and counseling techniques because the Bible just 
studying the Bible and teaching doctrine just isn't sufficient. And that's the impression that a lot of people get. Christopher Lash, in his book, The Culture of Narcissism, wrote, The, the contemporary climate is therapeutic, not religious. People today hunger not for personal salvation, but for the feeling, the momentary illusion of personal well-being, health, and psychic security. You see, psychology is another religious option. Psychology isn't something that's scientific, despite all of their claims. All psychological systems are loaded with pagan assumptions about the ultimate nature of reality. When asked if psychology and religion are just two different ways of arriving at the same answer, uh, William Kirk Kilpatrick, who is a professor of educational psychology at Boston University, responds, It is true that popular psychology shares much in common with Eastern religion. In fact, a merger is well underway. But if you're talking about Christianity... It is much truer to say that psychology and religion are competing faiths. If you seriously hold to one set of values, you will logically have to reject the other. So let's start off by defining a few terms. When I say that psychology is a destructive aspect of cosmic arrogance and paganism, what I mean by paganism is all thought forms erected independent of God and hostile to God. See, that's the essence of satanic thought. It is that I'm going to be God and I'm going to be able to live life and make life work apart from God. So what we see in the twin pillars of Satan's thought in his fall is arrogance, his focus on what I want instead of what God wants, and two, his hostility toward God. And so he developed an entire way of thinking about reality, thinking about the universe, explaining the origin of everything, and how life can work apart from God, and that's what's called in the Bible cosmic thinking, what I also call human viewpoint thinking or paganism. Second definition of a term is psychology. This derives from the Greek word suke plus the Greek word logos, which means the study or knowledge of the soul. Now, the Bible claims to have exclusive and sufficient and authoritative information on the soul. God created the human soul. God as creator is the one who has the right and authority to tell us what it's composed of and what its problems are and what the solutions to those problems are. Man, on the basis of uh, empirical data, cannot come up with that information. So there is a competition right there. Psychology claims to have a realm of authority based on its own uh, empirical scientific data, and the Bible claims to have exclusive authority in the realm of the nature of the soul and problem analysis and problem solving. Third point, by way of definition, is that psychology is based on the assumption... Oh, I left one out. Psychology is based on the assumption that man, based on empiricism and his own rational capabilities, has the ability to plumb the depths of the human soul and to explain human behavior based on the principles of scientific methodology. Psychology is claiming that on the basis of observation, man has the ability to plumb the depths of the human soul to define what it's made of and what, how it works, how problems develop, and how, what the solutions are. In other words, it is saying that empiricism is going to give us all of the information necessary. 
Thus, we conclude that there's a conflict between the systems of psychology and their truth claims and the Bible and its truth claims. So what are we going to follow? Are we going to follow the Bible? Or are we going to follow a humanly devised system of thought? Third point. All psychological systems, and there are over 400 different models of human behavior. Over 400 different models. So if you're going to, let's say you have a marriage problem, you want to go to a marriage counselor. Well, one of the first things you ought to be asking yourself is, what is her model of human behavior? How does, how does that individual think the human soul works? Well, how do problems develop? Is the human soul material or not? You go to uh, one counselor and they'll have a materialistic view. You go to another counselor, it's another view. There's over 400 different models. Which one's biblical? Is there a biblical model? And, is that, and if you go to a Christian counselor, do they understand that? Frankly, they don't. Believe me. Uh, I have, in my days at seminary, this was a hot issue, and for about ten years, I studied almost every so-called Christian counselor out there, and not one of them builds a system on the basis of exegesis alone. Every one of them, at some point or another, is importing expectations uh, of man. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Only God can speak authoritatively and finally about the nature of man's immaterial soul. Fourth, there's a vast difference between observing general trends or patterns of behavior and the type of specificity found in psychological models and explanations of personality, behavior, and problem solving. So psychology comes along with all these diagrams and flow charts about how everything works and everything's interconnected and tells you that, okay, if, uh, if you're in a situation and there's abuse, then this is necessarily going to result in certain types of behavior 20 or 30 years later. See, that's what they're really saying. And that is, uh, that kind of specificity cannot be derived from the kind of general observation that, you can, that, that we're restricted to. So, general observation can only produce general trends. It can't produce the kind of specificity that's found in most psychological models. And fifth, general revelation cannot and does not give information about sin, salvation, and sanctification. And that's what we're talking about. When you as a believer have problems in life, it's a sanctification issue. And you can't get information about that from general revelation. Fourth critique of all truth is God's truth is that all truth does not fall on receptive ears. All truth does not fall on receptive ears. Now, I quoted earlier Romans 1, 18 through 20. What we see there is most men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They're suppressing the truth in unri- of general revelation in unrighteousness. So what you're ultimately telling me is that people who have rejected Christianity and rejected the God of the Bible have rejected absolute truth. So they've shut themselves up to only a relativistic understanding of truth. And this means... So, so what you're telling me then is this fifth critique, that fallible fallen men who have rejected God presuppositionally, Fallen men who reject Christianity, like Freud, Jeannet, Jung, Maslow, and many, many others, that these fallen, fallible men who've rejected general revelation about God are then going to be able to correctly categorize, classify, and interpret data from observing God's creation about man? I don't think so. See, they've, they have begun by rejecting the only framework within which they can ever understand the data. 
And now you're saying that just on the basis of observation, they're going to come up with it. See, there's a difference between observing personality theory and human behavior and coming up with a scientific law or a mathematical uh, law. Those are different. Those are testable, verifiable, and repeatable. When you're talking about the human soul and human personality, it's not testifiable, verifiable, and repeatable. Romans 1.22 says that these men, professing to be wise, these who reject God, professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, the sixth point is that there is no such thing as Christian psychology. This is a misnomer. We often think, well, I'll go to a Christian counselor. There's no such thing as Christian psychology. Statement by the Christian Association for Psychological Studies. We are often asked if we are Christian psychologists and find it difficult to answer since we don't know what the question implies. We are Christians who are psychologists, but at the present time there is no acceptable Christian psychology that is markedly different from non-Christian psychology. Now I want you to listen to that. We are Christians who are psychologists, but at the present time there is no acceptable Christian psychology that is markedly different from non-Christian psychologists. I know Christian psychologists who are into primal therapy. I know Christian psychologists who are Freudian. I know Christian psychologists who are in rational emotive therapy. I know Christian psychologists in reality therapy. But there is no such thing as a, quote, Christian psychology. That's the point that this quote is making. It goes on to say, It is difficult to imply that we function in a manner that is fundamentally distinct from our non-Christian colleagues. As yet, there is not an acceptable theory, mode of research, or treatment methodology that is distinctly Christian. See, they're rejecting the Bible at the start as their starting point just as much as the secular psychologists. Now, there is such a thing as biblical psychology, and that's when you get into the Scriptures and you study the soul and immaterial parts of man, and you study what problems are, and we've studied stress and adversity and how the Bible says to solve problems. That's called biblical psychology, but that's not what is known as Christian psychology. The problem is that, that we often... in our environment and the world around us, we pick up a lot of psychological vocabulary, terms like self-esteem, self-love, the child within, subconscious, Oedipal complex, terms like repression. We pick up those terms from the world around us and they are all part of this psychological framework and then we bring that category in and reinterpret the Bible in terms of a modern psychological framework. Instead, the Bible talks about sinful habits sinful patterns that we get into. It talks about self-deception, ignoring reality, denying our sinfulness, ignoring God, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Those are the terminology, that's the terminology the Bible uses, and we need to stick with a biblical terminology when discussing human problems and divine solutions. When we use modern psychobabble to define this, then we bring psychobabble concepts into the Scriptures. Psychotherapy has seduced modern American culture as well as Christian culture with its pseudo-success and its false claims. In the book Manufacturing Victims, Dr. Tana Deneen says that over 10 million Americans seek the services of the psychology industry each year. In the early, she goes on to say in the early 1960s, 14% of the U.S. population had ever received psychological services. By 1976, that number had risen to 26%. However, by 1990, at least 33% have been psychological users at some point in their lives. And in 1995, the American Psychological Association stated that 46% of the U.S. population had seen a mental health professional. 
Some even predict that by the year 2000, users will be the majority constituting 80% of the population. The number of licensed psychologists is doubling every 10 years. Why is it so popular? Dr. Jerome Frank, who's a researcher in psychotherapy, states psychotherapy is the only form of treatment which, at least to some extent, appears to create the illness it treats. Ralph Nader's group came to this conclusion. A distressingly large number of mental health professionals take the position that everyone who walks into their office needs therapy, frequently long-term therapy, which often stretches for several years to the tune of thousands of dollars. They create their own market. Well, that's only the first seven of about 15 points. The good stuff is yet to come. We'll get there next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for your grace that you've provided everything we need, every solution to every problem so that we can live a life of stability and so that we can have the same happiness that Jesus Christ had on the earth. He promised us that his joy he gives to us and that is on the basis of First of all, coming into right relationship with you by trusting Christ as our Savior. And secondly, by advancing according to the principles of the spiritual life, learning doctrine, renewing our mind, and living on the basis of the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their eternal life, that right now they would take this opportunity to make that certain. All you need to do right where you sit is trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of making a bargain with God, not a matter of moral reformation, not a matter of cleaning up your life before you can become saved, simply a matter of accepting God's free gift for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we're learning and help us to realize that your word truly is sufficient and that there is a solution to every problem, every issue, every difficulty in our lives from your word, which is complete and sufficient. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.